let's just go. The sooner we get started, the more I have them. Okay, hold on. I'm going to refill my oh coffee. Oh, my God, then. John. What? Why don't you just have a pot with you at all times? You do have a pot with you at all times. <laughs> Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird tastes. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. How's it going, man? It's going great. How are you doing? I'm not terrible. I'm getting by. I'm really happy to be in the holiday zone, in the holiday spirit, and we're recording in December, so yeah, it's it's nice. It is. I the temperature do. just recently dropped here. We're probably going to get some snow this Oh, week. that's exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, not gonna lie. I'm mildly excited for you. Like, I like nice. the snow, but it's also terrible at the same time. It does a really good job of being, like, really beautiful and then also really annoying. Yeah, luckily I wouldn't have to take any seriously long drives so that would eliminate a lot of the terribleness of it not having to drive in it i mean also walking in it can be terrible i've got some nice snow boots so i'm not i'm not too concerned about that but yeah no it definitely can be especially when it gets slushy and muddy and terrible yeah not great it becomes like like a slippery slide fun zone but no one's having fun exactly like when you visited me in korea and i just kept eating it yeah i was so surprised by that i was all like oh you know he probably has a hang of not falling in the snow well because in korea they have the brilliant plan to make all of their curbs of this really slick fake granite material so you'll be walking on the sidewalk in the snow and it's fine and then as soon as you step on the curb which is completely invisible because it's all covered in a foot of snow you slip right off the entryway to my building was just this glassy fake that granite. is true that is very oh, God, true it was impossible it was impossible to walk up yeah and even inside the building once we got into the door into your building it was still super slippery yeah you just had to cling onto the handrail yeah it was no good. Not the best. Definitely a hazard for small children with no coordination. But you know, it is what it is. How's everything over in your end? How's, how's the old U.S. doing? Uh, everything's on fire. Oh, is it? Are you guys still having a lot of wildfires? Yeah, like a bunch. I feel really terribly for that side of it. It's LA. nice to be in Long Beach though, right? Oh, no, it's great. It hits like 70. There's no fires. And then uh, also there's no fires. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff. Where exactly is burning down? Is it over in like Thousand Oaks, that area, or up in the valley? Yeah, down towards the valley. It's yeah, towards yeah, like yeah. Valencia, you know, where like mm-hmm. Six Flags is and... Like, there's pictures of the fire just, like, consuming the mountainside, like, as you're driving down the 405 towards the Getty. Doesn't sound great. Yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't. That sounds great. Up north as well, I think. I remember reading a few months ago about how just all of California was on fire. I'm sad to hear that it's continued. Managed to sequester myself away. But now it's really all on fire, like, all at once now. It's not just like, oh, there's a lot of fires happening. It's like, oh, no, they're all happening at once. You know, fires in California. Yeah, that's true. They, They go hand in hand. I did have something I wanted to complain about today. I had a bit of a peeve that I wanted to go over. Okay. I mean, you always have a little peeve. Yeah, there's always something to complain about. And what's better for them than spitting audio out of the world? Mm -hmm. So I live in Dublin. This is well-established. Here, they have a lot of great things, but there are a few things that annoy me a lot, Mm -hmm. all the time. And one of them is the speed bumps. They call them ramps. Ramps? They're just, yeah. Because they're not all little bumps. Some of them are, like, you drive up... And 
for two or three feet, you're elevated, and then you drive back down. Oh, that sounds dumb. Yeah, well, I mean, it's designed to slow everybody down and make people not drive crazy fast on tiny little old-timey roads. And so I get why people Mm -hmm. use speed bumps, but I just hate speed bumps. And I hate everything that they kind of represent to me. After I was seething over speed bumps in my head, I started to think about why people go to using speed bumps and what I could equate with them. What could you equate with them? And I thought about the attributes of a speed bump. Just everything about it annoyed me. Because the goal is to slow people down, to make people somewhat safer. Okay, I'm on board Mm -hmm. with that. Make people safe, sure. But the way that it does it is just the worst thing you could possibly do. It damages cars. It makes every drive less pleasant. It's like if you could make everything about the experience of getting around the city worse... The speed bump is what you would design. That's fair. Granted, you're solving the problem. That's wonderful. But so, you're solving the problem by making everything worse. I mean, generally, speed bumps just tend to be in really slow driving areas anyways, right? I mean, at least here they are. So are, are they are they more prevalent there? Yeah, well, they're definitely more prevalent here. And they're on even mm-hmm. kind of main streets. Mm. Not highways, obviously, but they're on main streets. And it's really bad because you'll be sitting on the buses here. And you'll be on the top of a double-decker bus and to hit these giant speed bumps that you essentially, you don't have to stop, mm-hmm. but you have to go really slow when you get to them. And obviously the buses have to go even slower than normal cars. And it just annoys me every time we hit one and they're constant and they're everywhere. I think it's mm-hmm. the approach to problem solving. Like I've been studying and reading a lot about design and about mm-hmm. solution building recently. And when you look at that sort of solution, instead of trying to find something elegant and effective, what you end up doing is you say, Let's just find the fastest, easiest thing, and it doesn't matter if all of the consequences of this solution right. are just terrible. Yeah, that's that's not the kind of thing that I like. The whole mentality around. Well, maybe it's also just like the cheapest solution for some people. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not that's necessarily possible. that they're looking for the best solution. They're just looking for the most affordable one. Right. I understand mm-hmm. that, but as a city, I don't think I've ever been to any city that has as many speed bumps as this place does, and as like big, prominent speed bumps. I don't know. The fact that nobody else feels the need to go with a solution means to me that this is probably not the ideal solution. Like, other people find other ways of solving these problems. For instance, if you made more of the streets one-way streets, right. that would make them safer. You know, it's like in Paris, they put up a lot of barriers between the roads and the sidewalks. I see. So that people wouldn't go careening off right. the sidewalk and, like, kill people. That makes sense. Park where they're not supposed to park. That was their solution. Now, that's not a great solution either, but at least it doesn't say everything about this experience will be hmm. made worse to solve this relatively Why do you think problem. they put them up in the first place? Hmm? You think maybe it was to, like, avoid speeding? Or do you think it was to avoid having pedestrians get, like, wrecked completely? I imagine, and I haven't looked into this, but I imagine that it's because there were more car accidents than they wanted and that they tried speed mm-hmm. bumps in a few places. And they reduced the number of car accidents. And so then they just decided, well, this works. Let's do this everywhere. And they started rolling them out everywhere. And they're putting in new ones near where I live. They're gradually expanding them out Uh, everywhere. And I mean, when you're in a big organization, you test a solution. You find that it kind of solves the problem. Then you just go for that solution in a bigger way without thinking about, is that a solution that is actually something you want in your city forever? That's true. It's possible that it's just the first solution they found. They just stuck with it. They didn't go, well, what other solutions do we have? Right, but this brings up a bigger issue that I have with these sorts of things. Because I was thinking about this recently, too, and we'll get to more of this later in the show. When you're thinking about solutions for your life or changes in your life, like people talk about dieting and things like that, I really think you should be looking at making decisions that you can do forever, like changes in your life that you want to be permanent. If you're suddenly going to be like, oh, I'm going to lose weight by not eating any meat or dairy, but you don't want to not eat any meat or dairy forever, then that's not a good solution. 
even if it causes you to lose the weight, because as soon as you stop doing that, you'll go back to the situation that you were in before. So like, if you don't want speed bumps forever, you really shouldn't be putting in speed bumps because it doesn't fully solve mm, the problem. That's an interesting thought. It's just thought. a short-term band-aid. But maybe they've become used to them. Well, no, they have, because I even talked to my girlfriend, and like, I complained to her about these things all the time, and they've started to annoy her, but she never really noticed them before. Really? She just got used to it, because this is the only city that she ever drove in, really consistently for her whole life because when she moved away she didn't really drive and coming back she didn't really notice the speed bumps because that's just how it was until i started whining about it all the time that's actually pretty interesting maybe that's why they haven't come up with different solutions just because it's what they know like how would you go about changing the way like uh, an entire country goes about their feeling on something you know what I mean? Well, it's not the entire country. It's not like they take a vote on whether or not to do speed bumps every year. You know what I mean? Like, Well, I understand that. a few policymakers at the top that are making these decisions. Right, but it's not like the people are ever going to be clamoring for change, being like, no more speed bumps, no more speed this bumps. This is the issue, right? Speed bumps are a small design issue for the city. They're not a big enough thing to anger enough people to get street protests. But they are the kind of thing that... You could write a strongly worded letter about? Well, no, that changes the quality of life. There are lots of things that are small. Like you, you have this with products. You have this with all sorts of things. I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, Gap or Fruit of the Loom? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't remember who it was. Haynes, it was I think, Haynes. I think it was Haynes. They came out with t-shirts that didn't have tags. They were just like printed on the inside or whatever. Revolutionary. Yeah. It was revolutionary. But that's the sort of thing that for decades, they just sewed on these crappy tags. It's a small enough thing that nobody cares enough to complain. Nobody cares enough to try to fight it. But it really does make using the product better when you change it. And so it's a thing that somebody inside the company realized should be changed, even though it wasn't a big thing, because it made the product somewhat better. And so here, yeah, people are mostly going to care about healthcare. They're mostly going to care about tax policy, things like that. But making those small little improvements makes everybody's life better in the city that's how you actually move a society forward that's how you actually move products forward companies forward by making what the little things yes by noticing small things that you can adjust and change that make things better even though they're not a big enough thing to anger everybody and when you have professionals working on something Mm -hmm. in the head office of the city like working on these sorts of things and i know they've got a lot of other things to be working on but they should really be going to other cities around the world comparing what other cities are doing trying to find better solutions to all sorts of things like this and then applying those here. Hmm. Strangely profound, you know, looking at speed bumps and being like, this is what's wrong with all of yeah, society. Right. We, we really if we if we solve these issues, we as a whole race of human beings yeah, really, can move uh, forward. Expand. I don't agree by the way. There. <laughs> I got very sleeping. Yeah. I also like the comparison with the tagless. Okay. That's what really <laughs> sold it for me. And if whoever hears this is gonna yeah, be sold, you're you're gonna make a movement. No more speed bumps better solutions to small problems. Society must move towards the future. That's very true. Another little topic that I wanted to deal with, because we didn't have any follow-up today, so I just thought I'd talk about some random things that I find interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about this little archaic detail of, I guess, grammar. It's not really grammar, but it's etymology. God, how could I make it more boring than grammar? Just just toss out etymology. You are good at making things boring. (laughs) Yeah, right. A lot of topics are interesting, despite their obscurity. I really do believe, and Mm -hmm. I I know we need to talk about interest and people's interest in something more at length on another occasion, but I do think almost anything is interesting if you get to a deep enough knowledge level that you can understand the complexities of That's true. Whenever I hear anyone talk about something that they really understand, whether it's obscure or really complicated, I'm always invested in what they have to say, because they obviously 
care about the subject a lot and the way they talk about it seems very passionate right anyway so we're getting um off the subject yes grammar so one of the things that i've noticed because i've studied multiple languages is that there are certain connections between languages Mm -hmm. that have meaning in one context and have lost their meaning in the other context of the other language okay so let me take a step back so we have Mm -hmm. verbs in english obviously some verbs have prefixes so you look at something and you say like you have the word i don't know i should have thought about this but you have like make right make and then you have remake Mm -hmm. and you have unmake right you put on different prefixes and you get different words now we have other words that seem like that but Mm -hmm. the base of the verb or the base of the word doesn't seem to have any meaning so you think they're all connected in some way but it doesn't seem to have any meaning I have a perfect example for this. Mit. You know, like <laughs> submit and admit and transmit. Yes, exactly. Yes, that is a wow. perfect example, as it, as it turns so out. That's so funny. I know. What a, what a coincidence. And so you, you see this, and you have this little segment, mit, mm-hmm. right? Which means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. So you see all of these words that are seemingly related. Mm-hmm. Like you said, submit, admit, transmit, remit. Like there's a bunch of them. You can't draw out any automatic meaning from the fact that they're clearly related. They're clearly in some sort of mm-hmm. word family. But then when you learn those words in another language, you start to see a pattern emerge. And for me, this happened when I was studying French and then when I moved to France. And I learned the word mettre, right? Mettre is to like put, to place something. Mm-hmm. And you start to run into all of these other words that have mettre in it. So you have like sous-mettre, you have mettre, you have a bunch of different words like this. Mm-hmm. And then you start to compare them to the English words and you start to think, oh, well, sous-mettre is submit. Admettre is admit. Oh, look at that. How weird. And then you start to see all of these and you start to realize, well, they all, or most of them mm-hmm. at least, are the same thing. In English, we have this weird situation where those have become invisible because English is kind of, some people would call it a Creole or a hybrid language. Mm-hmm. It's a language that was mixed from kind of, not necessarily Gaelic, but Celtic roots, right? Germanic right. linguistic roots, right. and Romantic, generally like French roots. Mm-hmm. And so you have core commonly used verbs, right. like to be and to put or to go. Those all come from the Germanic side of things. Right. But all of our advanced verbs and all of our like advanced adjectives are basically the same as all of the Romance languages and right. French and Spanish and Italian. Mm-hmm. So you have all of the, what you would think of as highfalutin smart words, like intelligent and brilliant and anything that's an advanced word, essentially, mm-hmm. comes from French okay. or Latin, depending right. on who you talk to. But all of the simple words come from German. So to put or to place is a Germanic-rooted word. Right. But all of the words that have these prefixes Mm -hmm. came from French because they didn't exist in the more simplistic language that already existed in the UK at the time when French came and kind of conquered and dominated, right? Right. Oh, the French. I think it's interesting whenever you're coming across words to kind of dig deeper into where they come from, what they come from, how are they related to other words. And you see the same thing with like vive, which is obviously not a word, but live is the word, right, right. in English. But it's transformed from vivre in French. Mm-hmm. Which means? Which means to live. Live. To live, yeah. To live, okay. When you have words like survive and alive, like all of these come from vive. They all come from to live. And they're all related, but it's hard to see exactly how they're related. And you see this with all sorts of endings. So do we know the meaning of mit? Oh, well, mit is maître. Mit is the participle, essentially in French, for maître. It's kind of like a conjugation of maître, and it 
that form of the word, that conjugation of it, was just adopted into English. And then eventually that root of the word, because the actual root for wasn't used in English, that root began to lose its meaning and only the combined forms kept their meaning. Right. So you still have admit, just like admettre, but you don't have mm -hmm. maître. So the mit part is now kind of mm -hmm. like, why do we even say it? And we say it because of this right. long origin. I think understanding the origins of words and where things come from and why things are structured the way they're structured is interesting. So there you go. Okay, one more thing. There, There is yeah. a wrinkle to this, which I also find interesting. These sorts of linguistic evolutions are not predictable. And so one of the counterexamples to this with myth I want to bring up is promise. Promise in French is promettre. And you would think would come through in the same way with mit. So it would be promet. But T's can gradually become S's. These sorts of things change or perhaps... could be a dialect It could thing. be a dialect thing. It could be that... A different form of metre was used with right. the prefix pro more commonly when it came over to English. The, the one conjugation of that verb that came through into English, because obviously English doesn't have the same complex conjugation system that French does. Right. That one conjugation that came through was a different conjugation, perhaps. It's, it's hard to know exactly, or well, I haven't done enough research to know exactly why that didn't come through in the same way. But you do see that it's not always consistent. Apparently, I was reading, I don't know how accurate it is that, and this is more of like a, like a, uh, accent thing than it is you know meaning of mm. words but apparently yeah. English in the 1600s was actually similar to like American English so like UK English I guess was more similar to what Americans speak like now. I've heard something like this yeah. We've never had Evolved over time for them to sound the way they do and we just haven't changed that much here in good old US of A. Yeah you know I, I struggle to actually believe things like that. I mean I, yeah, I, I understand that right. there's Obviously, accent drift. Like, the southern accent and the Boston accent didn't exist in the same way that they do now 300 years ago. It's probably true. But it's a struggle for me to believe that we just sound the way we've always sounded, and they've gradually changed to right. sound. Especially because there's I mean, so many I accents. I mean, I don't disagree. Again, I was... Like that, but, um, I don't really completely believe it's true. I just thought it was, like, an interesting... No, it is an interesting idea. I find that gradual change of pronunciation and accents fascinating. One of the things that I've always found really interesting is the mix between Anglican mm -hmm. linguistics and culture and accent and German linguistics and culture mm -hmm. and accent in the United States. Because mm -hmm. I think the way we speak and the expressions that we use, they're very German. Our, I don't want to say tonality, but the kind of the right. pitches and cadence to our speech in the United States is very German in a lot of ways. You don't have the same kind of right. musical quality that you do in the UK. You don't have the same changes. Well, I have heard that German was like the most commonly spoken language in the US until, you know, like around World War II. Right, because they are the largest ethnic group right. in the United States. So, I mean, that could definitely be why. Oh, no. I, yeah, that is why. And that's why so many of our foods are German foods. When you think about most of our traditional foods, that's true. they're mostly not english food they're mostly german food mm -hmm. like you talk about hot dogs you talk about you know sausage is like the german thing you talk about hamburger obviously hamburger came from hamburg like what hamburg hamburger i yeah didn't know that hamburger was <laughs> the the style that people in hamburg ate their beef so right. beef prepared in the hamburger no. style right so, so yeah like lots of our no foods way. beer is a very common thing i mean and granted beer is very common in the uk as well but the style of beers that we have in the united states they're German-style beers much more than they are English-style beers. And even right. when you look at the names, like you look at Budweiser, that's certainly not an English-sounding name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As much as it's all a bit archaic, I find it all fascinating. Well, it is pretty neat. 
Did you want to get into uh, one of our main topics now? 20, 30 yeah. minutes into the conversation. <laughs> hey, it's a good conversation. You had a lot to say. Yeah. And it's just fun. It was fun. It was good stuff. I okay. liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. Okay. Learned some stuff, like Hamburg and Hamburger yeah, were related. That's what I'm doing, just edifying the world. One small <laughs> detail at a time. <laughs> so, talking about how things change. and mm-hmm. We were talking in a previous episode about how advances in medicine and <laughs> other things. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, mostly advances in medicine, right? Could lead right, to people living longer. Stuff, yeah, yeah to, to just recap, we were talking about whatever sound of medical advances or whatever kind of magic medicine thing would allow people to live for a long time. What would the possibilities be? What would the possible attributes be? And more, more particularly, what would be the possible downsides and problems within society, right? And so we were talking about how we would manage yeah. that, how these decisions would be made, who would get the opportunity who would get the magic pill to live for I mean, ever. Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, rich people would because they could afford it. But that's let's really, pretend. I mean, that's not. I don't think that's an obvious thing. You don't think so? Yeah, I, I don't think if that sort of thing right. came into fruition, I think it would be a seismic enough mm-hmm. shift in society and in the way society is ordered, the ex- expectations of people in society. That I'm not certain that the structures of our society in, in terms of capitalism and wealth distribution and all of that would survive that in what way inequality starts to spread in a much more significant way when you get a group of people that are immortal right because suddenly all of their advantages increase right yeah they now can work for longer they now can save Mm -hmm. for longer they can invest for longer they can learn more so if you get a class of people who essentially will be able to live for you know 500 years then they can spend the first 50 years just training without a problem if they have the capital to do that right they can they can spend an inordinate okay. amount of time right. building things. They can invest for the long run in a way that your average person would not be able to. And, and besides all of that, I think mm-hmm. if you have your average person dying at 80, depending on the distributions, it would be... It's it's much easier to get people to accept that somebody else is richer than you and has like a Lamborghini or a private jet when you just drive a normal car. It's a different thing to accept that this person can live five, ten times longer than you and that that's just okay. I can see how that might be an issue for some people. But I mean, also, if people are struggling and poor, are you sure that they're not okay with not living as long as someone who's wealthy and his life is good? Because why would they want to live for 200 years if literally they have no discernible skills in their 60 or well, they're unable to provide for themselves the way they like to? Most people are not struggling and poor. And increasingly going forward, I don't think most people will be struggling and poor. Now, I mean, you could say most people in the world are struggling and poor, but... When you're talking about these sorts of things, Mm -hmm. I'm mostly focused on Europe and North America and maybe East Asia, right? Like I'm focused on the wealthier societies around the world. He doesn't care about poor societies. It's not that. It's just that they're not going to be the ones inventing these medicines. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to go to Angola and be like, oh, wow, this incredible long life serum. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Like that's that's (laughs) unlikely to happen. (laughs) That's probably true. No, yeah. you're not wrong. I mean, you might be wrong. Who's to say? Right. Maybe the world's chaotic. <laughs> Anyone could find the solution to preventing death. When you look at large enough sets of numbers, almost anything becomes predictable. But That's also true. Because, cause, okay, because I think this is tied into another conversation that is happening with a lot of people now, 
which is a conversation around that we were kind mm-hmm. of having last time around automation and around productivity and whether or not owning things becomes the primary source of productive labor. And I just think that there are a lot of things that could potentially happen in the next 20 years, 30 years that mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe will happen or expect to happen but could shift mm-hmm. or weaken the underlying structures of society in such a way that they need to reform. And the okay. proportion of the population that sees significant advantage from these changes has to be large enough in order to ensure that the current structures stay as they are. And if it's too small a group of people, the current structures will be destroyed. And so you see that in history when you go back to the bourgeois revolutions of like the French Revolution and the American right. Revolution, right? Where the people that were really advantaged in the existing system were such a small proportion of the population that almost everybody was going to be against the system. Right. And so if you look at the system today, you still have the vast majority of people benefiting from the system. So yeah, everybody's angry and protesting and wanting to tear down the elites and everything. But it's not because they're being harmed by the current system. It's because they're not being helped by the system as much as other people. Those are two right. different things. Do right. you know what I mean? If you get to the point where the vast majority of people, like 95% of people are really not being benefited from the system at all, then you Mm -hmm. start to have this sort of thing shift. And anyway, I I do think that the idea of scarcity is inherently tied up with this idea of enduring long life. And I think it's something that people don't acknowledge. Let me, let me think about how to, how to say this. So, okay. So scarcity is the underlying principle of economics, Right. right? It's the idea that we have limited resources and unlimited desires. So that becomes an even more important concept when you Mm -hmm. start talking about unlimited life or eternal life or or at least life far enough right. out of the future that you can't foresee when it's going to end because i, I would have to assume that if somebody's right. living for 200 years and they're born today by the time 100 years has passed the technology may have improved at a significant enough rate that they'll now live for 250 years so you get to the point where the, the ability to extend life accelerates at a rate faster than you are living so every year that you live your life expectancy goes up 18 months and so you mm-hmm. just you would never predict that you are going mm-hmm. to die at a certain point you reach a lot of population issues. I mean, but don't you think that the more people that do that, the less those people will reproduce, which might have like an impact on population growth in like richer countries? Right. So that's that is one perspective, right? And that's that's a perspective that a lot of people have hopefully had or had in a hopeful way for the last fifty years. That yes, people are living much longer and that's causing our population to rise. But at a certain point, those people still die. And if they're having fewer children, Mm -hmm. then that is less of an issue. That's why everybody's so focused on birth rates when they're focused on demographics and population change. But at a certain point, that stops being true. Because right now, even if people live longer, they still die. And so, yes, it used to be your parents and maybe your grandparents were alive. And now it's definitely when you're born, your parents and your grandparents are alive, almost definitely. And when it gets to the point where, yes, obviously your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents are alive, you start to get to a point that even if people are only having one or two kids, the Mm -hmm, population mm -hmm. obviously continues to grow at a rapid pace because no one is dying or very few people are dying. And that becomes unsustainable. But I wonder if, you know, life starts extending to, like, let's just say even like 200 years old. At what point are you going to be considered like a senior? At what point is the government going to intervene and decide that you need social security if that's still around i mean those things change like at what age will your body no longer be able to produce children well i do think you're right fertility might still have like a time limit or what have you but social security isn't necessarily going to change right because Mm -hmm. when it was first created i believe the age of retirement was 65 
and life expectancy has consistently gone up every year since the 40s or the 30s. And the retirement age has only recently barely shifted to like 66 or 67. So I don't see that Social Security or these sorts of retirement programs will automatically adjust with these sorts of things. And, and especially because the, the people that are getting these benefits are very significant entrenched power. And their numbers are growing in proportion to the rest of the population. So they're going to be even less likely to want to allow themselves to get fewer benefits or not get them until Then wouldn't later. it be less sustainable if you have those benefits for, you know, 200 years? Oh, it's obviously less sustainable, but that, this is my point. This is, this is the whole issue. And it becomes an even bigger issue if this medicine is extraordinarily expensive. Right. Because deciding who has a right to live and who has a right to die is, is a hard, it's a problematic question to allow That's the government true. to decide that. You don't think it'd be privatized? Like it'd be a private miracle liquid pill that extends life? It might be. Right. So then it's not really someone making the choice. It's just can you afford it or not afford it. Well, but that's assuming that it stays private. We've gradually seen healthcare more and more move into right. the public sp space, right? But something like dramatically extending life, that's probably going to be worth a lot when it first comes out and for a long time. Right. It's, it's, it's obviously worth a lot. Like it offers a lot of value. But the question, and this is, this is, <laughs> this is a, a different conversation that I don't really want to get into, but the, the question immediately becomes what determines somebody's right to have this? I like this question. Because m most people now, especially in Europe, mm -hmm. define healthcare as a right. So if there is a healthcare option that will allow you to survive, you have a right to have it. Right. And more and more people in the U.S. think this way. But and so if there is this miracle right. drug or if there are a series of therapies that allow for it, whatever it might be, if you say people have a right to have it, then it's difficult to say that people don't. Or if you do say that people don't have a right to have it, then what it means is you start to gradually have to shift healthcare back into the private sector. I could see how someone would interpret it that way. But if you're healthy and you live your life as long as it's meant to be lived, if you live to be 70 and your whole life you've been healthy and you just die at 70, why would you have a right to live to be 200? What Like, why is that? Why, why is that? Well, why do you have a right to healthcare at all? Well, why, why would that be considered healthcare? That's like a luxury, wouldn't it be? Well, but so is healthcare. Like, I don't understand the distinction you're making. Well, I think if you're sick and you have to go to the doctor to get medicine, I don't think that is a luxury. It's just like, oh, I don't want to get sick. But if you lived your whole life and you were able to afford to be healthy, and it just so happens you're not going to live to be 800 years old. Well, but you're assuming that no chronic diseases exist, right? Like diabetes and heart disease and things like that, osteoporosis, well, Alzheimer's. These therapies will solve all of those problems, but those problems won't be solved for just everybody automatically without these sorts of therapies. So you're not just going to live in perfect health like a 25-year-old until you're 80 and then die without this stuff. No, I, but what I mean is if you need the therapies to extend your life, maybe you can afford a therapy and you just don't get cancer throughout your life, but right. I don't know, you do get dementia, die of dementia, or you just... Your body's immune system, you know, fails you because you're old. Wouldn't you? But no. I mean, those those things happen. Maybe if you could afford all 30 of the therapies, if they're worth like 30 therapies to take, sure. Your basic premise, though, is that people don't have a right to these things, Mike. Because you're saying maybe if you can afford. But if you have to pay for it and you, maybe you can afford it, then it's not a right. Like with free speech, we don't say maybe you can afford free speech. But if you can't pay the free speech fee, then you don't get free speech. You assume that it's a right. Everybody has it because they simply exist.
they have this right. And so if you look at healthcare as a right and you have a right to be healthy and have the state make considerable efforts to make you healthy, then you have a right to but it. You can't. Even if you are healthy and still expire at 89, what does extending your life have to do with your health? If you happen to die of old age. Well, but there's no, nobody dies of old age, Mike. That's not reality. People die of right, actual but people, Right. They get like sick and their immune system isn't what it used to be and they die of like the flu. Right. Some people do that. But the quote unquote 100 years ago died of old age. They died of Alzheimer's or dementia or osteoporosis. They, they died of other things that right. you couldn't see before you had the deeper understanding of medicine. Like cancer used to be a huge thing that people just had no idea why people died, you know, but they died of cancer. Mm-hmm. So dying of old age is not a real thing. I guess that's true. I mean, so let's say that someone does find a way for people to keep on living for 200 or 500 years or whatever what have you and whatever it's just keeping their physical bodies healthy right yeah but mind still deteriorates so you get dementia you get dementia you die at 80 or 70 because of it that's what kills you or if say you do get your life extended right and you get to live to be 200 and that's when dementia kicks in or what if it kicks in at 450 years old like right what what is that then is that still right well but this is my whole point I've never thought that healthcare is a right because I think that rights have to do with your relationship to the state and what the state is able to limit your actions by or in mm-hmm. ways that the state is able to limit your actions. I don't believe in economic rights. So you don't have a right to a good job. You don't have a right to income. You don't have a right to a house. You don't have a right to healthcare. These are things that I don't believe people have rights to. But when you say that people have rights to these sorts of things, then that's fine as long as the expectations of these things are limited. But when you start to expand them and you get to things like this, or you get to situations where things are just extraordinarily expensive, you start to run into difficulties of it being pragmatic to provide this for everyone because the capacity for it has to come from somewhere. But okay, let's just assume that it was a private thing Mm -hmm. that people had to pay for. Okay. So there are all sorts of moral issues around this, but obviously when it first comes out, it has a patent, right? Right. And we're kind of talking about it as though it's a miracle pill that you can take and just makes you super healthy and live forever. In reality, this would be very complicated, like right. therapies, other things to work <laughs> I mean, on repairing your Obviously, but we don't have like that, that, like, that that kind of knowledge to put it in that setting. Or I don't. Right. Like <laughs> neither, neither of us have detailed medical knowledge of these things. And even if we did, they don't right. exist yet in any real way. So we wouldn't right. really, you know, explain how this is going to happen. But what, what, what I'm saying is the conception of it as something that's just automatically cheap, that you can just make these pills endlessly, that's, that's a wrong way to think about it, I think, because it's not going to be, oh, it was really complicated and expensive and took a ton of research to develop this pill, but now it's super cheap to make. Like, it's still going to be expensive, just like cancer treatment is still expensive. The research right. and development was really expensive, and the ongoing treatments are really expensive. This will be the same sort of thing. Yeah, it would be super expensive. Right, but what I'm saying is a lot of pills are really expensive even though they're super cheap to make because companies are trying to get paid back for the research and development. This yeah. would probably not be that sort of thing. This would take ongoing expensive treatment forever. So what that ends up – essentially, the company, in order to make profit and just because they have this huge power, they would want to charge a lot. But you run into – even in the United States – you run into a lot of issues where people are angry by the prices that drug companies are charging to earn profits. And so you immediately run into an issue of, well, this thing could save the lives of tons of people, but the company wants to charge a lot. And so you run into a problem where lots of people are dying because they're charging a lot. And you long-term run into a, a situation where you just have 
millions and millions of people dying all over the world mm-hmm. when you can stop them from dying. And it's it's a difficult thing to accept that your society is just going to let everybody die. But everyone dies. You know what I mean? Even if there was a cure to extend life, even if those people got to live to be, I don't know, an extra 400 years old or an extra 200 years old, they're going to expire eventually. Why? I imagine that if it were an expensive long-term thing that they probably couldn't keep up to afford it or maybe despite the fact that it is an expensive thing and it does extend your life, maybe your body still, your immune system still can't handle the flu when you're 300 years old or something. Right, but you're making assumptions, right? right? Like, Well, I mean... The assumption that someone is going to die... We have to suspend that assumption. Because like what I said earlier, where every year that you live, your life expectancy goes up a year and a half. Mm-hmm. If you get to that point, well, you don't necessarily have to die. Like if you think about us as machines, okay, right? and you say, well, you can repair every part of the machine, well, then the machine doesn't have to die. I guess it's... Like with your car, if you can replace every part of the engine and you can give it a new paint job and you can replace the seats, you can replace everything piecemeal as you go, as you need to. But then don't they have that whole, if you replace everything, is it really the same thing that it was originally, right? Which would be right, different from with people. Yeah. yeah. That And that is a that is a question. But when if you think about even that, as we currently live, I believe... Well, and I, I don't know, I'd have to look this up, but I, I believe that over the course of our lifetimes, we don't really keep any of the same materials in our body. Right. Like yeah. eating and drinking, we, like, yeah. we replace yeah. everything in our, our body and it yeah. gets cycled out. So, totally. So that's kind of a yeah, point. Yeah, that's true. You are correct. Um, I totally forgot about that. Anywho. Do you think they would start making people fight each other to the death? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> eventually I think people would start being concerned with the population, right? Because if people are having kids and there is no foreseeable death in the future. Eventually, they're going to have to start culling the population in right. some I, I, manner. Well, I, th- I think that the go-to would be re- restricting these therapies. So you would make these things really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the market mechanism would be the go-to way, especially with the way we have currently viewed society, that these things would be solved. And this is why the whole thing that I was talking about with scarcity is an important thing. Because like I've heard a lot of people speculate that at a certain point, machines will get so good at doing things that all work or almost all work that humans do will be kind of pointless because machines can just do it. Right. And what that means is that you're switching from a scarcity mode where there are limited resources. We have limited productive capacity Mm -hmm. and unlimited desires to where you don't have limited productive capacity. Productive capacity, because it's not based upon human labor, theoretically you're only limited by, at that point, the resources on the earth. Mm -hmm. And so you switch to a, a mode of abundance but when you switch to a mode of abundance, all market mechanisms start to break down and the capitalism completely collapses. And this is why this becomes important because you would use market mechanisms to restrain this and to restrain the population, but that might not work. You know what I mean? Like right. you get to, into abundance. And even if it does work, you get into kind of a dystopian society where you have extremely wealthy, eternal ruling overlords mm-hmm. and a poor underclass that just dies because if you made this cost a million dollars a year there's a group of people that would be able to afford that forever essentially and there's everybody else that can't afford that also very true yeah you're not not wrong there and and this is where if it only helps that small portion of population you start to have resentment underneath right yeah it's hard to disentangle and as bad as that mm-hmm. one Justin Timberlake movie was, yes, like yes, you, you know the one I'm talking about. Time. The what was it? Yeah, time? The, I don't know. Time stop. Something like that. Justin time. Yeah, yeah. Justin time. 
as bad as just in time was. I think that's a realistic mechanism for limiting population where you just have people die and you start to switch time into currency. I, I don't think that that's right. probably how you would do it. Right. Because I don't think that the actual therapy will be just free and everybody mm-hmm. gets it from when they're born. I, I, I think the, the key to all of this is that there are real problems that come about when you have this sort of right. thing. And they don't just go away. When you solve the problem of death or you solve the problem of aging, other big problems, just as big for society, start to arise. So basically, we have no idea how he would manage people living for a long time successfully. Well, the way I would do it, and this is going to mm-hmm. sound harsh, is you just have the rich ruling over class. But I mean, I think there would definitely be a revolution. Yeah, but the thing is, if you have, a, and this is why capitalism has always worked up till now, it's because a revolution would make everybody worse, right? And so if you had a revolution in the United States because this rich ruling overclass that is lives forever um, isn't sharing this remedy to let everybody live forever with the poorer classes, but it wouldn't actually be possible to share it with the poorer classes because you just couldn't produce that much. It would just cost too much. Then you're not going to have that happen because enough of the people understand that that's not the way to make things better. I don't, I don't think enough people would. I think there'd be a lot of people who would be angry. Well, it depends on if the rest of the population is still having their lives gradually improved. Like when you look at the Russian Revolution, like the Bolshevik Revolution stuff, the whole of the country was suffering and struggling. When you look at the French Revolution, they were having a famine. You know what I mean? People were not able to get food and dying. Those sorts of things happen because people are having a worse life than they had before. If everybody's lives are continuing to improve, even if the super wealthy now don't die, having a ruling elite that lives for a thousand years is generally going to be a good thing because those people are going to plan for the next thousand years. Those people are going to try to structure society so that it is sustainable and in a good situation for a very long time. And they'll have a huge amount of experience that will allow them to do that successfully. So we're coming into the end of the year right now, which is always a time for reflection and a time for looking forward and setting goals for the coming year and everything. See you later, 2017. Yeah, right? I'm I'm hopeful about the coming year. Me too. And I wanted to know if you have any big takeaways from this year or any big themes for your upcoming year. Are you a big resolutions guy? No. I feel like it's insincere. You know what I mean? No. Some people are like, oh, new year, new me. But if they really wanted to change something about themselves they would do it the second they thought about the change they want to make you know what i mean i already said that twice you know what i mean (laughs) three times yeah i'm not sure that i agree with that if december 5th you decide i want to get in shape but i'm gonna wait until january 1st to do it it's insincere just do it then just start the day you want to start if you want to start working out just go for a run the next day yeah like i don't i don't disagree with you but i i do think that january is a time when you're very open most people aren't very busy in january December is a time where everyone is at their most busy of any time in the year. You have parties you're going to, you have Christmas things, you just finished Thanksgiving, you got a lot of shopping, gift buying. You can't necessarily You can like, shop on Amazon now. Shopping could take you like two hours and you can right. get gifts for everyone. Uh, but, but and just, Christmas parties aren't every day, they're on weekends. Okay. People can make time after work. Are you, hold or on. Before are you work. trying to tell me that you're less busy in December than January? No, I'm okay. just saying that That's, if you really want to do something... You could find a way to I do it. I agree with you. And if you decide that you want to do it for the new year because you think the new year is somehow going to change who you are as a human being, that's weird and dishonest. You're being dishonest with yourself I and with, with you. whoever you're telling these things to. And this is why people talk to. about New Year's resolutions 
always fail, right? Like that's why that's such a thing because people tell themselves, oh, I'm going to make a change, but they're not actually going to make a change because they're not taking it seriously. And they weren't serious enough about it to actually start it when it first occurred to them. But that being said, I I do think that there are a whole lot of things that would be hard if you tried to start them in December. Like if you wanted to start being a vegetarian or you wanted to start losing weight or something, you're going to start losing weight when eggnog is everywhere you go. That's not the easiest thing. What if you don't like eggnog? Okay, Mike, don't say, what if you don't like eggnog? Everybody likes eggnog. Also, even if somebody doesn't like eggnog, I mean, I love pies and ham and turkey. and It's not... That's true, but that's a meal you have on the holiday. You clearly don't have the same experience with with your family and friends. I mean, I don't know how often you have turkey and ham and giant, you know, holiday dinners throughout you the go to month holiday of December. And there's eggnog and there's pumpkin pie and there's all sorts of other chocolates and okay, treats. Okay, I'll give you that. Like, it's true. It's not just on Christmas Day. But I guess my experience is a little different. Okay, so do you make new goals in the new year? I know you don't do resolutions, but do you like make goals for the year? Or like it's a useful time to plan even if you don't want to make specific immediate changes. I mean, generally, if there's things... I want to get done. I create like a time frame okay. for myself. But do you use the new year as like a time to reflect yeah. or a time to plan or it's just like any other time of year for you? Yeah, to me it is. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I've done, okay. what I could be doing. So what are your takeaways from 2017? Hmm, that's a good question. My value is higher than I thought in the working okay. world. That's good. A little boost your self-esteem. How do you mean? Like you're able to produce more value or... You're just in more demand? Yeah, that, that's just more okay. in more demand. I, mean, I don't know if I'm producing more now than I was then, but people want me more than a few years ago. It's nice to be wanted. Yeah, it is. So that's something I took away from this year. How did your year go? Was it a good year? Did you get done what you wanted to get done in the year? Not everything, no. Well, everything is a hard. That's a high bar to reach. Right. Well, I mean, not the things I really wanted to do. Like, I mm. wanted to be... In university this year, which did not happen, and that really upset me a lot. Things I did get to do. Write. So you felt good about your writing this year? Yes. I got to write a couple of short stories. I outlined a comic book story I had that I just had in my brain and actually got to write it down. It was pretty flushed out, so I'm pretty proud of that. My relationship was pretty good this year. How how would you rate it? One, One to ten. Where does this year lie? Where does this year lie? Hmm. Maybe like a six. Okay. Slightly above average, but not great. What about you? Are you a New Year type of person, plan, resolutions? Yeah, so I am a bit of a planner. Like, I think about the future a lot. And so, like we've talked about with time tracking and things like that, I do have a systematic approach to thinking Mm -hmm. about plans. And January, I think, is a very natural time to start this sort of cycle so yes i I do come up with not really a plan for the year but a direction that i want to be going in for the year and some goals for the year in terms of things that i want to focus on and i think about those things at the end of december and i do try to begin implementing them in the beginning of january because i do think that january is a natural time to begin implementing change but i think you're absolutely right that you can't just walk up on january 1st and say okay now i'm a new person and i'm going to be completely different i think that ideally if you want to start changing anything it's always best to give it some lead time so if i want to be different or want to start moving in a different direction in january i need to spend the last two or three weeks of december trying to do that because whenever you try to do something new or you try to change yourself you're going to start failing immediately and then after you try to do it repeatedly for a couple weeks you'll start to see some 
adjustment, you'll start to see some changes, right? Right. And so I am a believer in that because also like I, I have, you know, I have my whole structure of weekly reviews to keep myself on track with what I'm working on every day, quarterly reviews to set like longer term project type goals, and then annual directional goals and plans to give not kind of a theme for the year, kind of a direction that I want to move in. And so this is the time when I'm evaluating my last quarter and I'm laying down both next quarter and next year. And so it's a time that I review my five-year plan. I review the, the entire structure and direction of my life to see if I did what I wanted to do this year. If I didn't do it, why didn't I do it? How should I change it? What things do I need to implement to get myself moving more in the direction that I want to be moving in than I have been in the past. So, okay. yeah, it's it's a big time for me. And how was 2017 for John Roberts? You know, it's it's interesting because I kind of feel like you that I mm-hmm. didn't get everything I wanted to get done done in the way that I wanted to get it done. But I'd say 2017 was pretty great. That's great. I'm One of my that. best years, I think. Yeah, it's it's gone gone very very well. When I think back to the entire year, back when I was in China and then I was traveling in the U.S. and Peru and stuff, and now I've settled here in Ireland. Mm-hmm. The last few months have been kind of intense and difficult, but it's interesting when you think about your progress over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Thinking about where I was last January, it's kind of night and day difference. I'm in a completely different spot, obviously geographically, and in terms of what I'm doing with my days, but also in terms of my mental state, where mm-hmm. I'm yeah. thinking. Like, it, it's, it's good to be able to look at a year and see your progression, which is one of the reasons why I like having such a systematic approach to planning, because you get to look back and really take in where you were, what you were thinking about, and how it's changed. Yeah, I feel, I feel good about the year. I'd probably, I'd probably put it around an 8.5. Wow. Yeah. Pretty good year, then. It's a, it was a good one. Yeah. yeah. Not my worst. Doesn't sound like it. 8.5. Yeah. yeah, right? Pretty happy about it. Sounds like a good year. Yeah, I mean, really, my years since I first started my five-year plan, which was in 2014, so this is the third year. Well, I guess I really started it. I actually started the five-year plan in 2015. I started moving toward the five-year plan in 2014 and preparing for it in 2014, but I started it in 2015. All of those years since I started that have been pretty solid and increasingly so. You know what I mean? 2015 was all right. 2016, really good. 2017, Solid, about as good as 2016, and so yeah, I'm 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 happy with it. Glad to hear it. All right, so now that I know that you don't really plan to change things uh, going into January, I guess it's kind of a moot point. But do you have anything that you do want to see different, or any changes that you want to implement in your life? Mm. Like, as we're thinking about and talking about change, is there anything that you really want to change? Since I started working where I'm working now, I've been really busy, just mm. busy at work, school, and so. I've kind of stopped working out and I've been eating pretty unhealthily. Yeah. This is just something I've been thinking about in like the last week or so is just maybe changing my diet, starting to go run, Mm -hmm. just get in better shape because I don't like the way I feel. Yeah. Or look. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've changed that much physically. Just got to start focusing up on that. Well, yeah. When you stop exercising, the first thing that you'll notice is that you don't feel as good. You feel groggier. You feel more tired. Everything is worse. Yeah. You definitely don't see the change as quickly as you feel it. Yeah. So I'm going to start making small changes towards that. Nice. It just happened to coincide with the end of the year, but it's not really because of the new year. Yeah. It's just something I want to do. Okay. 
that is a useful kind of thing to think about for a year-like plan because mm -hmm. I think when you're thinking about it on the scale of a year, that's too long to make really concrete plans. Mm -hmm. But that is a long enough time scale where you can start trying to make small incremental changes that will have a huge impact in the long run, long, large cumulative impact, right? So two or three months is a perfect time scale to plan for a project that you're trying to work on or to try to get something produced, like if you were writing a story or if you were trying to make a film or something. But a year is a much better time span if you're trying to say, I want to change a little thing in my life that will have a huge impact over a long time period. You want to start being a little bit healthier or working out a little bit more, just saying, how can I adjust my life to start doing that a little bit every week or a little bit every day that will then impact me by the end of the year. It's not a project I need to work on. It's not something I'm going to dedicate a huge amount of time to, but it's something that I just want to adjust in my life. And for me, one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I've started this month because like I told you about the whole preamble thing, one of the things that I've started is I'm trying to learn how to cook better. Oh. Yeah. So I'm always trying to learn things. I'm always focused on developing myself. But one of the things that I've really appreciated since moving here, moving in with my girlfriend and everything, is learning from her about cooking and learning how to prepare meals a little bit better. And one of the things that I've started this month and will try to continue at least for the first quarter going forward into next year is to at least cook a new dinner for us once a week that will stretch my skills in some way. And yeah, that, that's one of the small personal things that that's I'm, I'm going to start trying to do in the coming year. Are you going to cook something different every week or are you just going to like practice the same sort of techniques every week with different foods? Something different every week. Because the idea is that I would introduce myself to a lot of different cooking right. ingredients and cooking techniques. And so I'm not necessarily going to get super expert at anything, but I want to get to the point where I can be comfortable okay, if I have I to see. deal with just about anything. Because I look at it as in the same way that I looked at any of my personal development in terms of doing stuff with audio recording or audio editing or video editing or language learning. It's a learning process where you want to give yourself a foundation. Mm -hmm. You want to introduce yourself to things. And you want to do it through actually right. using whatever you're doing. So I don't want to watch cooking shows or read about cooking. I just want to okay. practice actually trying to get it done. And it won't always turn out well, but I'm, I'm going to give it a go. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so, so we'll see. There's, there's a bigger one that I want to try, but I'll, I'll talk about that if, if it ends up happening. It's, it's much less of a sure thing, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm excited to hear about this. Yeah, I know, right? Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but you want to wrap this one up, Mike? I sure do. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh. <laughs> rewind. <laughs> Sorry. Just, just to mention, yeah, rewind. Just to mention to everybody, uh, just a reminder, you can always find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 008. Is this eight? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, 008, yes. Subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 008. There you go. So you can find our show notes there. Please send us a message. Send us any feedback, any interesting topics that you want us to cover in the new year. Go ahead, send them on to us. Uh, you can always donate to us on our Patreon. You can support us in any number of ways that you can find on the website. Yeah, all the you know, ways. Yeah. Just, just do them in every way possible. Reach out to us. We're always eager to hear from you guys. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you next week, Mike. All right. Talk All to right. you then. Bye. Bye.
God, I wish you guys could just see me seeing him on Skype, dressed like he's about to go sledding down a mountain of snow with a, a pot of coffee in his hand. Even though he's inside, obviously, his home doesn't do a good job of keeping him warm. That's not good. While me, on the other hand, I'm in, like, some shorts and, like, a tank top because this is California and weather is great here. It's not Except for the raging fires. doesn't keep me warm. It's that when you get up at 6.30 a.m. It's nippy. It's not warm, and you have to turn on the heat, and it takes a little while. And also, my house doesn't keep me warm. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, you know, I can't win them all. One of us was right, and the other one was <clears throat> wrong. I was right, just FYI. Well, one of us is right, and one of us is wrong.